It was a warm spring day, a lot like the days we've been having recently. And I was uh, working at a church that had two campuses, a kind of a main campus and then a campus in the north. And I was working alone in the office, uh, just getting kind of the music stuff ready for that week. I was the worship guy. I played the songs. And I hadn't been in ministry long. I hadn't gone to seminary yet. I hadn't had any classes on theology or on pastoral care or how to help people in times of crisis. I was just the music guy. But I was sitting there working alone, and I got a call uh, from the, our main campus, the main office, and the worker who called me said that there was a toddler from our north campus who had fallen and was hurt and asked if I'd be willing to go down to the hospital and do sort of a pastoral care visit with the parents and with this child. And I explained to her, um, actually, I'm the music guy. I don't really do that. I play songs. And she explained, well, there really isn't anybody else. For whatever reason, all of the other pastors were tied up, and there's really no one else that could go. And so I, I sort of reluctantly said yes, and I got all the information of where I needed to go and all of that. And I, I started driving down the road, down 35W towards Regents Hospital, or 35E towards Regents Hospital. And I wasn't totally comfortable, but I figured how hard can it be to, to go in and, you know, just pray with the family, say some comforting things, you know, kiss the boo-boos. How hard can that be? And I'll never forget where I was on 35E, just, just about to the exit for Regions, when another call came in, and I saw that it was from the church office, and it was the same woman calling, and she simply said, she didn't make it. And I was confused. I said, she didn't make it to the hospital? She said, no, she didn't make it. She died. This is suddenly a very different hospital visit than what I had prepared myself to do. And I felt completely overwhelmed. I didn't have training for this. I wasn't equipped for this. I didn't want to have to go into this. This felt like something that was so much bigger than something I was able to step into. What on earth could I say to this young mother and father who had just lost their child? What on earth could I do to offer hope and consolation in this incredibly painful moment. I remember pulling into that parking ramp and just sitting in my parking space, not wanting to get out of my car, not wanting to walk into that hospital, not wanting to be in the situation at all. I sat in that parking ramp thinking of a million reasons why I shouldn't be the one to go. I think what I was feeling in that moment, in that parking ramp moment, that feeling of, of just being overwhelmed and underprepared. I think what I was feeling there is similar to what so many of us are feeling right now in our lives, in this season of our lives. The events of the last few months have turned our lives upside down. And the events of the last two weeks have, have just left us reeling, feeling overwhelmed and underprepared, ill-equipped even to know how to begin to step into the brokenness and the tragedy and the hurt, to even know how to talk about it. Even before the death of, of George Floyd and the subsequent protests all over the world, many of us were feeling overwhelmed with the prospect of rebuilding our lives, rebuilding jobs that were lost, an economy that, that is nearing collapse. Many of us were already feeling like we were in a wilderness. It's sort of a parking ramp moment saying, God, I, I, don't, I don't wanna do this. I don't know how to do this. I am not prepared or equipped to do this. The challenges are too big. The systems are too broken. The history is too long. Well, fortunately, 
Scripture has a whole lot to say about those parking ramp moments, those wilderness moments. Scripture is full of wilderness moments. And today we're going to continue in the series that we started last week called Exodus, Lessons from the Wilderness. Looking at the stories, the origin stories of the people of God, people who were called to face so many insurmountable challenges, who so often felt unprepared and ill-equipped to step into them. And we're asking the question, what lessons can we learn about God, about God's people, and even about ourselves as we navigate our own wilderness moments? Today we're going to look again at the story we introduced last week of one of the primary characters, Moses. I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. As we learned last week, Moses had escaped genocide as a child and was instead raised in Pharaoh's courts, raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. But in a moment of just and righteous anger, Moses kills a man and as a result has to flee for his life. And he flees to this wilderness, this Midian, this place where he becomes a shepherd of another man's flock. In the wilderness, a place where he certainly didn't want to be, it wasn't the life that he anticipated. It wasn't the life that he'd asked for. Living in the wilderness. But God was in that wilderness. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I think there's a couple of lessons that we can learn right from these opening paragraphs of the story. I mean, Moses is just sort of going about his business, tending another man's flock in the wilderness, and he comes upon this burning bush, which in and of itself is a shocking sight. In and of itself would have been a miraculous sight, this bush that was burning but didn't ever burn up. But in that moment, apparently Moses didn't recognize it as a holy moment, as a holy ground moment. God had to tell him to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. Moses is interacting with the God of the universe, but doesn't immediately recognize it. I think the question for us is, do we recognize these shocking moments as potential holy moments? Do we recognize these holy moments as we're sitting in our news feeds, sitting in our offices, sitting in our questions, sitting in our parking ramps, not wanting to, not knowing how to, not feeling qualified to enter in? Do we recognize that in those moments, we might be standing on holy ground? We might be on the verge of seeing God do something miraculous. Let's continue. Next verse. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. 
and I'm concerned about their suffering. This is the key. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. God sees the oppression. He hears their cries. He's aware of their suffering. And so God responds. But it's interesting. Notice that it says, I have come down to rescue them and to lead them. But then how does this God who has come down to lead and rescue them, how does he actually plan to accomplish that rescuing? Next verse. And now the cries of the Israelites have reached me, and I've seen how the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So now go, I'm sending you, God says. Yes, God absolutely sees the crisis, sees the injustice, sees the oppression. And he says, I have come to deliver and to rescue, and I am sending you to accomplish it. Next verse. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I, says Moses. And it's kind of a funny response if you think about it. I mean, Moses had been raised in Pharaoh's court. He was the perfect candidate, right? I mean, he had been given so much. This man had grown up in Pharaoh's household. He'd had the best of schooling, the best training, the best of everything. Moses was perfectly positioned to work on behalf, to speak on behalf, to advocate on behalf of these Hebrew people. And yet, he says, who am I? Because he knew that he had messed up that opportunity. He had lost his place of power and privilege and persuasion. And he was instead living in hiding, sort of sidelined in the wilderness. But God says, yeah, but I still choose you. I still choose you to make this right. I think part of the lesson in this for us, and there's a place to write this down, is that God can use us even when we've completely messed up. Many of us, when we look at the challenges that we are facing, just we feel unqualified. But I think for many of us, we not only feel unqualified, we also feel disqualified. Disqualified by, by perhaps the things that we've done. Or at least for me, often it's the question of the things that I've left undone. Perhaps we feel disqualified as people, particularly as white people, who've never had to face the injustices that people of color face every day. I mean, how do we even begin to enter into that and help as white people? How do we begin to do it in a way that's actually helpful and isn't paternalistic and sort of white savior? I think for many of us, that is a real question that leaves us feeling not only unqualified, but sort of disqualified. And I think it's okay to call that out, to acknowledge that, to confess that. Last week, as we were preparing for communion, we read this confession that we read every month. And yet these words struck me differently this time. We said, Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, and by what we have left undone. Over the last three weeks, I think many of us have had the invitation to ask ourselves those questions. To say, what, what have I done that has contributed to these problems? What have I done to help? And perhaps most importantly, what have I left undone? Where have I not moved where I could have had I been willing to say yes? 
I think one of the, the lessons of this story is that God can still use us even if we've been sidelined, even if we've chosen to stay on the sidelines, God still wants to use us. God still can use us. This is a story of redemption, not only for Israel, but also for Moses. But Moses isn't having it. I mean, Moses then basically spends the rest of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4 listing all the reasons why God should find somebody else. He says, who am I to speak to Pharaoh anyway? He says, I'm not credible anymore to the Hebrews or to the, or to the Egyptians anymore because of what I did. He says, I'm not an eloquent speaker. I wouldn't know what to say. Where do I even begin to say these things? Just like I sat in that parking ramp coming up with a million reasons why I shouldn't be the one to go into that hospital. Moses comes up with a million reasons why he shouldn't go. But to each of them, God responds in the same way by saying, you say you aren't worthy, but I am. You say you aren't powerful, but I am. You say you aren't eloquent, but I am. To each of Moses' protests, God says, yes, but I am. I will go with you. I will give you the power of miracles. I will give you the words to say. And what's remarkable is that even with all of that, Moses is still resistant. Verse 13, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Can you even imagine looking God in the face and saying, yeah, could you, could you send somebody else? But if we're honest, don't we do that sometimes? We look at the situations in our world that are so broken and we say, that is, that is unacceptable. Someone should do something about that. And I think part of the lesson that we learn in this story is that yes, someone should, and sometimes that someone is you. But not always. Sometimes we need a someone, and there's a place to write this down. Sometimes we need a someone else to go with us. Not for us, not instead of us. But we need someone else who will go with us. Next verse. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he could speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. Aaron will be Moses' other. Not his instead of, not his in place of, but his other. God says, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and I will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. God is saying to Moses, you're not disqualified. You still have a key role to play in this. Yes, you can bring Aaron and he will be your mouthpiece. But I'm going to give you, Moses, the word that he needs to speak. It'll be you that performs the signs and the miracles. You will lead my people out of slavery. As I sat in that parking ramp, wanting desperately to be anywhere but there. As I sat in my car thinking of all the reasons why I shouldn't go in, I watched as a car pulled up next to me in the parking ramp. And it was driven by another pastor who was also very new to ministry. 
And he had also gotten a call and he had come and as he got out of his car, I got out of my car and I, I looked at him and I said, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And he just said, yep, let's pray and let's go. And so we paused right there in that parking ramp moment and simply prayed, told God that we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to say, saying, God, help us to have wisdom in the situation. Speak through us. Use us in the situation to accomplish your good in this brokenness. And then we went. We entered into the most difficult experiences of my life. Honestly, I don't know if I would have ever gotten out of my car had my friend's car not pulled up. Sometimes we need others to go with us. And sometimes we need to be the other for another. Be the one who will go in first, who will say, yep, let's pray and let's go. Well, back to Moses' story. If you continue reading through chapter 4, you see that eventually Moses does actually get to saying yes, but it's not in a very enthusiastic yes. It's this super guarded, very reluctant, foot-dragging, broken yes. But it's a yes. And I think perhaps the lesson for us in that, and there's a place to write this down, the lesson for us in that is that God can use even our lamest yes. God can and will use even our imperfect, stuttering, scared, reluctant, I need a buddy to go with me, yeses. I mean, to be clear, God wants our all-in, fully devoted, single-minded, single-hearted devotion and yeses. But God will meet us where we're at in these insurmountable, parking ramp, wilderness, wilderness moments if we're willing to turn even slightly toward him and say, I'm scared, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to bring help in, into this. But yes, I'm willing. I want to be careful in telling this story of Moses to not sort of sell Moses short. I mean, it's easy to see his imperfections in the story, like so many biblical characters. But I think we have to pause and remember just how big of an ask God is making, just how huge and impossible this task that, 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 that God is asking Moses to do. For 400 years, Egypt had built a system that oppressed the Hebrew people. For 400 years, Egypt's economy had been built on, their cities had been built by, their crops had been harvested by these Hebrew slaves. 400 years. This is now the system in Egypt. And God is asking Moses to go into that and basically to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let the backbone of the economy go. Let your industry and development and all of the things you've built for 400 years, let my people go. That is an awfully big ask. It just feels overwhelming to even think about it. But the truth is, so many of the challenges, so many of the issues that we are facing right now from global pandemic to potential economic collapse to fighting human trafficking and immigration issues and, and trying to dismantle and rebuild a broken justice system, our systems of, of racial reconciliation, those are all big asks. Those are all insurmountable, unclimbable mountains, each of them. And so it's natural for us, like Moses, to say, well, what can I do? Immigration is complicated. I can't undo centuries of systems that have gotten us to this point. 
And yet I believe in these holy moments, in these, these parking ramp moments, God may be saying to you, may be saying to me, so now go. I'm sending you. I'm sending you to bring rescue, to bring healing, to bring help. And in this moment, we have to remember that just as the ask of God was unfathomably big, so are the promises of God. The promises that God would give words to Moses and that Moses would be able to say things that he could have never come up with on his own. That he could speak into this unspeakable situation. That God would work not only through miraculous signs and wonders, but he would actually work in the heart and the mind of Pharaoh. That God would do incredible things to undo a system that had been in place for 400 years. Those are big promises, and those big promises are just as true today as they were then. Just as true today in our insurmountable challenges. God is asking us to go and do what seems impossible to do, that we don't feel equipped to do. And into it, God says, you aren't, but I am. You're not doing this on your own. I am doing this with you and through you. In the days and weeks and months ahead, we are going to face some challenges that seem absolutely insurmountable. And yet the call, the invitation for us as followers of Christ is to pray and then go. How do we as a church, as a community, prayerfully together discern how God would have us to respond in each of these situations? How do we respond to, to what is clearly becoming an enormous issue around race and justice and injustice. But also, how do we respond to other issues around immigration and trafficking, trafficking and poverty and so many other issues that desperately need the presence and the action of God in his church, in this world? And then how do we attune our hearts and our minds, not simply to the messages of social media and the, and the constant 24-hour news cycle, the constant news feed that wants to distract us and, and take us all these different directions. How do we attune our hearts and minds, not to that, but to the Holy Spirit who leads and guides and directs, calling and empowering us to figure out the ways in which we can, even if in imperfect ways, say yes to God, yes to where God is moving. And then be able to say in the power of the Holy Spirit, God, I don't feel equipped to go. I'm scared to go. But I will take even that little step of faith. I will go anticipating what you're going to do. I'm looking forward to seeing and experiencing what only you, God, can do in these broken situations. When I was willing to get out of my car and to go into that hospital, walk into that room and stand trembling in fear next to that young mother and father as they stood and they wept over their child. As I walked alongside of them through the days and the weeks that followed, I got to watch, I got to see as God did the unimaginable. I got to see grieving parents experience God in remarkable ways in the midst of their profound pain. I got to see a church that had been divided for years over dumb church politics, arguing over carpet colors and worship styles. 
I got to see that church become the body of Christ for that family and move mountains to love them really, really well. Because I was willing to step in, I got to see God do unimaginable things in the days and weeks that followed. And I would have missed seeing all of it if I'd stayed there in my parking ramp moment, if I'd stayed in my Midian. It's when, and perhaps only when, we're willing to go into the unknown, into the wilderness, trusting that God will lead us, that God will provide for us, that God will guide us as we go, that we get to see God do the impossible, the miraculous, beyond all that we could ever ask or hope or imagine. I want to end our time by praying. I invite you to pray with me. And I want to use some of the words that Chris introduced a couple weeks ago. Uh, These are words that that he used as a child to set up uh, his offering in his church, the words that he still remembers today. And I think they are words that speak uh, not only of, of offering as an act of worship, which it is, but offering as an opportunity for us to say yes to God, of saying, God, yes, my resources, my time, my treasure, the things I treasure most, I offer to you for your purposes, for your kingdom. I'm going to pray and then we'll end by praying these words together on the screen. God, there's so much that we are facing right now as a nation that seems too big, seems too scary, seems like it's more than we can possibly even put, again, put a dent into. And yet, God, we recognize that you've called us to be your hands and your feet, to represent you as ambassadors of your kingdom in this world. So God, give us wisdom. Give our leaders wisdom. Help us to know how it is that you would call us to respond and to act and to move in these situations. God, we offer ourselves to you. Let's pray these words together. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, maker of all things. Through your goodness, you have blessed us with these gifts. With them, we offer ourselves to your service and dedicate our lives to the care and redemption of all you have made for the sake of him who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.